many of the stories I do podcasts about, you really couldn't do in print. They they don't they wouldn't work. The narrative effect you're trying for is something that really requires audio. I really do think they're. The more I get into it, the more I'm convinced they're profoundly different genres. You know how hard it is to make someone cry in the page. I mean, Dickens could do it, but it's really difficult making someone cry in a podcast. I mean, we do it all the time. That little fact alone speaks volumes as to the difference in these two uh, forms. My guest today is the author of five New York Times bestsellers and is known for his 10,000 hours of practice theory of success. He's also the co-founder of Pushkin Industries, an audio content company that produces the podcast Revisionist History, which reconsiders things both overlooked and misunderstood. He's been included in the Time 100 Most Influential People list and touted as one of foreign policy's top global thinkers. I'm Georgina Godwin, and I spoke to Malcolm Gladwell on The Big Interview. So, Malcolm Gladwell, the author of global bestsellers and public intellectuals, well known to many people. Malcolm Gladwell, the podcaster, is relatively new. And I just wonder how different he is. The the New York Times says, author Gladwell is a crisp white shirt and slacks. Podcaster Gladwell is a bucket hat and flip flops. Would you agree with that? Uh, that's funny. <laughs> I hadn't, uh, I'd never, I'd never heard that before. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I would agree in the sense that, you know, podcasting is much more relaxed. The audience is more generous. The tone is more intimate. The stories are more emotional. Many of the stories I do podcasts about, you really couldn't do in print. They they don't, they wouldn't work. They're the kind of the effect that the narrative effect you're trying for is something that really requires audio and or they might work in print, but not as well. Do you know what I mean? I really do think they're, the more I get into it, the more I'm convinced they're profoundly different genres. Mm. And I mean, you can manipulate, that sounds a horrible word, but you can manipulate people's emotions so much more effectively with audio, with the use of pause or sound or so on. Oh, you could make, you know how hard it is to make someone cry on the page? I mean, Dickens could do it, but it's really difficult. Making someone cry in a podcast? I mean, we do it all the time. We, <laughs> you know, we we have like four or five genuine crying moments a season. I very much doubt that I have, in all of my writing, made any more than a handful of people cry. I mean, that little fact alone speaks volumes as to the difference in these two um, forms. Mm. Tell us about the company, Pushkin Industries. I started it with my old friend, Jacob Weisberg, one of my very best friends. And we just wanted to do quality audio. So we thought there was a there was room for, you know, we weren't going to do lots of true crime shows and all that kind of thing. And also we didn't want to be a kind of think of ourselves as purely a podcasting company or purely an audiobook company. We were agnostic as to what form whatever we were working on ended up in. The common element was we wanted to do audio. We just thought that like, Working in sound was something that would be really fun to kind of explore as a, um, there hadn't been a kind of pure high-end sound company before. That was Pushkin. 
Mm. Uh, before we get on to your latest series, The Fabulous Revisionist Histories, I'd like to look back a little on your own history. You were born in 1963 and you recently turned 60. Happy birthday. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, is there any kind of revisionist aspect to how you view your upbringing now? How do you think being the child of a, of a psychotherapist and a maths professor influenced your childhood? Oh, my. I mean, how long, how much time do you have? Uh, I mean, it obviously influenced it a great deal. I am the child of two analysts, two very different kinds of analysts, right? They are both mathematics and psychoanalysis are analytic philosophies applied to certain kinds of problems. And so I got a little bit of both. I suppose that's one thing. And my parents were immigrants. My mom, you know, was Jamaican. I was an immigrant first to England and then to Canada. And my dad was an immigrant from England to Canada. In retrospect, that fact is probably the most important of my upbringing. I think there's just a tremendous, for someone who's going to kind of spend their life looking at a society and commenting on it, it's very useful to be an outsider. Mm. And that move from Britain to Canada when you were six, do you think that had a, a big impact on you, perhaps a bigger impact now when you look back? I think it does. I mean, I wonder whether it would have made a big difference had we moved when I was 15 or 12, you know, where I had spent a significant part of my educational upbringing in England and I could have had, you know, a little bit of both. Um, and had stronger memories. You know, my memories of growing up in England are, you know, I have them, but they're not central to my recollections of my childhood the way my Canada memories are. Mm. What about religion? It was a religious household in a very religious part of Canada. Did that mm. have a, a big effect on your thinking now? Well, sure. If you listen, revisionist history actually is mostly, you know, of all of the things I've done over the years, you see religious themes most often. I mean, I both sort of explicitly, I did a series on the Jesuits and the, the way they look at problems. And one of my most memorable episodes was one of the early seasons, we did something on a Mennonite pastor who had to make this choice between marrying his gay son and staying a pastor in his church. Um, I just, I find the subject of faith to be, and its obligations, its attendant obligations to be, both interesting, kind of intellectually, but also important. I think that those kinds of, those are very core questions that are essential to the way we kind of see ourselves. And I think people who didn't grow up in a religious community are very often shy about talking about religion and its effects and power. They don't like to admit they take it seriously. I don't have any problem admitting that I take religion seriously. You started work at, at the Washington Post back in 1987. You went on to hone your style at the New Yorker. Do you think your younger self would have predicted where you are now? Well, every prediction my younger self made about my older self is proven wrong. So, <laughs> in fact, every prediction I think I've ever made in my life has been proven wrong. I don't make predictions. I don't really think about the future much. I'm convinced that it's foolish because... In fact, I, you know, even at Pushkin, I'm constantly objecting to budget forecasts, which I realize is, is absurd because companies have to do budget forecasts. But my point is, they're always wrong. So why do we do them? Like, you know, it's like it's a pointless exercise. Why do we persist in trying to persist to predict a future that can't be predicted? So, no, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. 
So you have a child now, and I listened to a very interesting podcast you were doing where you were talking about, you know, parents doing all of this research about what school their kid should go to and, and so on. And you were saying it really doesn't matter. Has being a father changed you at all? I now have two children. Has it changed me? Well, I go out less, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, it's changed me only in the sense that I'm. it's brought a great deal of happiness, unexpected happiness into my life. So in that sense, yes. Um, has it changed my positions on parenting and child raising? I mean, I now have data, personal data that I didn't have before. Do I think that schools don't matter? Well, you know, it's never that it's not that I thought that schools don't matter. Schools do matter. It's that I didn't think that parents were in a position to accurately predict what school will be best for their child. In other words, the thing about a school that makes it valuable to you is not something that either you or anyone else has access to at the point at which you're making the decision about what school to attend. It's random stuff. You know, what made my schooling really important was a couple of friends I made along the way who just happened to fit kind of perfectly into what I was, what I needed or, or didn't know I needed. Or, um, and relationships, chance sort of intellectual relationships with teachers who I didn't know you know, when we moved to the community and the decision was made to move me to take me to a certain school or what have you, or who I chose the University of Toronto. And there were some professors that I found very inspiring. I had no idea who they were before I went to Toronto. So I, I can't say that I chose Toronto because of the quality of the teaching. I didn't know how good the college, you know. I suspect that there are a hundred colleges in North America that I could have chosen where I would have found teachers with whom I would have had an interesting experience. And another hundred where I could have made friends who had a lasting impact on my life. I, but I, you know, in no case could I have predicted who those people would be or where they were. It's another instance of this kind of the folly of prediction. Why do we believe we can predict these things? But of course, we can understand things by looking back. And that's where revisionist history comes in. Why this particular topic for your podcast? Well, I'm a... I am a history buff, and I'm a contrarian at heart. And I love the idea that the term revisionist history was used as a term of disparagement. Nothing's more fun in my mind than trying to kind of rehabilitate a term that is used negatively. What I'm always struck by is how long it takes us to kind of figure things out. If you read history, you realize we're still sorting through the 17th century. You know, we're still kind of... Still trying to figure out what happened with Elizabeth I or whatever. You know, like you can pick people, various. We're still arguing in America about the American Revolution. So it's like hundreds of years have passed and we still haven't figured it out. So the premise of the show was let's stop pretending that there is a moment when we understand the past. And let's gleefully enter into the, into the exercise of turning our expectations and our predispositions upside down. Mm -hmm. You're now on <laughs> Series 8, and we'll talk about that in some detail in a moment, but I wondered if you could just tell us about the start of this series. Well, you know, there's there aren't really... I mean, there are certain themes that run throughout. I've always really been interested in education. There's a lot on education. I obsessively return to my hatred of elite colleges. And there's been a lot about race over the years, a subject I return to again and again and again. But mostly there's a kind of, what I like about it is the element of randomness that runs through the kind of story selection. 
we have 10 spots to fill. And then at the end of every year, I start frantically thinking about how to fill them. And it's really what's whatever is kind of, I remember once, one of my favorite episodes we ever did was about how dogs were actually, the best way to detect COVID is with a dog. The dogs are much better than even PCR tests. And a really rational response to COVID would have been to breed tons and tons of German shepherds and golden retrievers and train them to sniff out COVID and just like have them walk in the streets. They all have to do is a proper COVID sniffing dog can just, it's a really quick sniff and they can sniff any part of their body and they can tell instantly whether you've got the virus. So like, I remember I was lying awake one night fretting about what an idea for, I needed an additional idea for that season. And I just remembered that I had read something about how dogs were really good at detecting bladder cancer. They're also better, by the way, at, um, they're really strong at colon cancer. You know, you don't need to get a colonoscopy. What you need to do is get a colon sniffing dog who in about 10 seconds can tell you everything actually at a greater level of specificity and accuracy than a painful colonoscopy. I mean, the whole thing is dogs are so good. Why there isn't a dog in every doctor's office, I have no idea, because the dogs are just genius at this. So I was just thinking about this, and I was like, well, surely there's COVID-sniffing dogs. So in the morning, I actually, I think that night at 3 a.m., I Googled COVID-sniffing dog, and sure enough, there's a you know place in Alabama that trains dogs to sniff out COVID. I love that kind of, if you were going to, you know, you can't write a book about that. If you wrote a magazine article, I maybe would work, but it's not fun. What's fun is to take the listener on a trip to Alabama and like hear all those lovely voices and the dogs barking and, you know, like get the whole scene going. And then, you know, in two weeks later, you have an episode. That's what I like about podcasts, that kind of serendipity. I can completely see that, but I also put it to you, it would make a really good dystopian science fiction novel where people were being taken down on the streets by angry COVID-sniffing dogs. Couldn't it just end up they being a nightmare? No, 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 they, the dogs don't get angry at you. They sit down in front of you. So the way, a lot of times, they were using them actually to, in football matches. In England, I think they used it. was in England or was it in America? They just line everybody up who's coming to the stadium and the dogs would run down the line Sniff, 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 sniff. Takes them like no time, one second per person. And then if you've got COVID, they just stop and sit down and look at you. Very kind of, you know, with those big gooey <laughs> Labrador eyes. And that, and you get pulled out of the line and told you have to go home. Super easy. Let's talk about American gun control because that's your current season. Why is this subject so central to US culture? Oh, God. You know, it's the myth of the frontier. It's the, you know, it's, if they'd lost to the British in 1776, maybe they wouldn't be so obsessed with the kind of mythology of their own, you know, they a bunch of ordinary settlers defended themselves against the great British empire and won the day. You know, I'm. it begins there. And then they had the big frontier and they like defended themselves against Indians and bears. And, and it just never... And, you know, this silly line gets written into the Constitution about the right to bear arms. And it just takes off from there. It's, just, I, it's very hard. You know, it's funny. I didn't. I was going to do, as part of the season, didn't, a comparison with Canada. Because it's, Canada is the same thing, right? It's this 
it's the same geography, it's the same wide open space, it's settled at the same time by roughly the same people. And Canada has none of this gun nut craziness. And so there's something peculiar, you know, if you want to say it was the geography and the and the historical moment in the something and the something, then Canada should be as bad as the as the United States. And it's mm. not. Mm. So it's largely mysterious. You've mentioned the 17th century a couple of times, and there's one person in particular who's become a sort of, well, he obviously dead now, but a great uh, patron saint almost of guns. That's Sir John Knight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sir John Knight is some random merchant in Bristol. Back when Bristol is a kind of semi... When Bristol is one of the big slave ports um, in England in the um, 17th century, and he's like a, from a kind of a prominent local family. They have a big plantation and lots of slaves somewhere in the West Indies. And he's a really, really unpleasant human being. And he's constantly getting into troubles with the law. And he's involved in this kind of fracas where he bursts into a church outside Bristol and starts waving his guns and saying the Catholics are going to come and get us. He's, he's a profoundly racist man. And he gets charged with disruption of the peace under what's called the Statute of Northampton. And he's acquitted for a variety of reasons. This is the most random, obscure court case from hundreds of years ago. And if you read contemporary American jurisprudence on the Second Amendment, his name comes up again and again. He's become a kind of hero. The right has taken this case and somehow turned it into a referendum on the big, because he was acquitted and because he was carrying a gun. There, this is proof, this is taken as proof somehow that English, the English common law tradition is profoundly friendly to the use of the carry and use of handguns by civilians. Mm. I mean, still, and so I, in the episode, I call up all these actual British historians who know something about Bristol in the 17th century. And they, I mean, you could hear them over the phone rolling their eyes. I mean, it's like they're just flabbergasted that a bunch of American legal scholars with an axe to grind have descended on their little corner of English history and elevated to prominence the most obscure and the most disreputable kind of character from that era. I mean, it's, it's a hilarious story, really, if it didn't have such tragic consequences. But anyway, that's one of the stories we tell in the series. And my favorite thing is we got an opera singer to do a little John Knight aria throughout the episode. So we had fun with it. And of course, you also examine that the whole Second Amendment, how it really wasn't crafted for the country that you have today. It was for bears and, and, and so on. Uh, and you also look at long running television series like Gunsmoke, for instance, and kind of come up with the conclusion that the Supreme Court just watched too much Gunsmoke when they were growing up. Yeah, well, I was trying to kind of, there's a hilarious, you can listen to the Supreme Court's oral arguments online. They had an oral argument in this, this landmark gun case from a year ago called the Bruin case. And all the, you hear all the justices kind of working through the logic of their positions and questioning the attorneys for both sides. And if you listen to the oral argument in the Bruin case, it's lunacy. I mean, you realize these guys, several members of the court are just crackpots. And there's this bizarre discussion where the court appears to be of the mind, several members appear to be of the mind, that this subway in New York City would be safer if everybody was allowed to carry a handgun. Now, 
I don't know if you've ever ridden the New York subway or the London subway, the tube for that matter. Does anyone in their right mind think that life on a underground would be safer if passengers were all carrying Glock semi-automatic pistols? <laughs> I mean, this is just the most absurd notion in the world. Like anyone who knows anything about gun, any serious gun owner user would say that is like the most terrible idea. If you're an expert in the use of a handgun, by the way, you will never hit your target. You'll just like start spraying bullets and killing innocent people. But the idea that you, the thing you would have to fear on the subway late at night is a gun battle is like terrifying. So I was sort of, after listening to this and I played some of the tape, I asked the question, where would they have gotten this lunatic idea that we would all be better off if we could carry guns on the subway? And my answer, and the only answer I could come up with is, I think they must have watched lots of Westerns growing up. <laughs> One of the really important points you make is that gun crime isn't necessarily going down, but what's getting better is trauma surgery. Yeah, it's, so the, the level of number of homicides in a country is a function of two things. And that is, one is the, the level of violence, and the other is the quality of healthcare, right? So if healthcare were perfect, we could have, you know, everyone in a city could get shot, but if they would all survive. And so the homicide rate would be zero, right? If everyone got shot and there was no hospital and no doctors, the homicide rate would be presumably 100%, right? So you, both these factors matter. So when we observe the decline in the homicide rate over the last 25 years in America, which has been quite marked, the decline, what are we observing? Are we observing a diminution in the level of violence, or are we observing an improvement in the quality of trauma care, mm. of the treatment of victims of violence? And I think a very strong argument can be made that what we're really seeing is the latter, that healthcare has gotten so much better, that people are living who would otherwise have been gunshot victims. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful episode. You go into JFK and so on. You also learn to shoot yourself. You speak to an expert. There's so much to unpack in this series. Just one last thing about your live shows, because you do go out uh, and you do a couple of live shows a year. And the subject of one of them was about endings. And you say the challenge of revisionist history is we always want to tell a story. We want in some way to betray our audience's expectations. And you talk about the difference between anecdotes and stories and how really you've got to end things properly. How do you end things properly? Well, I don't always end things properly. I know how I would like to end things properly. An ending has to be both accepted, that's the sense, it has to be consistent with what's coming. So the audience has to you can't knock the audience over the head in the last minute. They're not going to, it's not credible. They have to understand that the ending is a kind of, is the logical extension of the story that they have been told over the previous, whatever it was, half hour. At the same time, though, they can't know exactly where the ending is going. Otherwise, they'll stop listening. And so you have to strike a balance between this desire to be both predictable and unpredictable, surprising and yet consistent with the narrative. So that's one kind of challenge. And the other, the other thing about ending, endings, of course, the obvious thing about endings is that you can be happy. If you go and see a movie that's an hour and a half long, you can be happy for the first 89 minutes. But if they disappoint you in the last minute, you don't like the movie. Yeah. It's a radically kind of asymmetrical relationship that we have with endings where they count for way more than one would imagine. And I think where people get really lazy about endings, 
I read a, a thing with John Grisham recently where he does not write a word of his books until he knows exactly how he's going to end them. Now that's, he's a master. So, but I mean, you know, that tells you why there is, his stories are so satisfying because mm. he hasn't left the most important element to chance. Malcolm, how should we end this? Oh, what if I, what if, what, what about me just saying how much I've, I've enjoyed it? <laughs> that works for me. I think we also need to tell people to listen to Revisionist yes. History. Listen to Revisionist History wherever you get your podcasts. We're in the middle of our six-part gun series, um, and it gets, it's about to get, the first couple are fun, the middle ones are serious, the last ones are pretty heavy. And you'll so. have to listen to them to know the end. Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you very much indeed for joining me here on The Big Interview. Thank you. Real pleasure. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle, researched by Caitlin Dunner, and edited by Jack Dewars. From me, Georgina Godwin, thanks very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.